gentlemen and otherwise, I would like to welcome you to How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. I am your host, Kelly KFM Meyer, and I consider myself lucky that any of you are even here. In January 2020, I began writing a book outlining all the gory mistakes that I had made since my wife and I founded our brewery eight years earlier. The second edition of that book is at 57,000 words and available on Amazon, both in Kindle and paperback formats. Please check it out, pick it up, read it, and share it with a friend. The show is the same name as that book simply because my goal here is to help my guests to experience the same catharsis I did after laying my story out in public, and because I know that the lessons I wrote about were only the tip of an enormous iceberg. If you like the show, please remember to subscribe, like, write a review, share with a friend. Trust me, it all really helps. In this podcast, I will interview people in and around the beer business to uncover the mistakes, the pitfalls, and the hardships that all of us poor souls in the brewing industry have had the misfortune to experience. My guests will autopsy dead and dying breweries, break down the science of brewing, and dissect the art of marketing. I'll talk to distributors, retailers, beer writers, even a fan or two. Hell, I'll shove a mic in front of anyone I think can make you better in your business. This is open and honest conversation packed with emotion and sincerity, and hopefully, a little bit of fucking vulgarity. I want to thank you for joining my guests and I on this journey, and I truly hope together that we are able to teach you and your loved ones how not to start a damn brewery. My guest today is not a beer manufacturer. He doesn't distribute beer and likely hasn't ever carried a half barrel keg up a flight of stairs. He does drink it, but that's not why I've asked him to sit down with us today. See, I've always felt that if lessons are principles, then they have to be universal. And they're only universal if they can be applied across multiple disciplines and industries. So if the 10 mistakes I wrote about in my book are worth the paper they're printed on, then I would be able to discuss them with someone far from beer and still have it make sense. I've always believed that you can learn valuable insights by seeing how owners in other industries tackle their challenges. So I asked Josh Cunningham if he'd sit down with us and talk about how my mistakes applied to his career. He's a detail-driven coffee guy who until last year was also a coffee shop owner. Josh got interested in coffee through everyone's favorite gateway drug, weed. If you've ever been to a coffee shop in Amsterdam, that actually wouldn't sound weird at all. So Josh got started in coffee as a kid and actually got some artisanal training but it was really just a job and he never quite appreciated the art of the thing until he got a job in college at fucking Starbucks of all places. And I I guess I really didn't appreciate it until I went to college and got a job at Starbucks and then I realized that they weren't doing quality coffee. That they were not. They were not. I thought you were going to go the other way, that Starbucks changed your life and opened your eyes to coffee, but that wasn't the case? No, that wasn't the case. (laughs) Yeah, surprisingly so for their popularity. No, it was more of an eye-opener that uh, the stuff that I had spent a little bit more time training wasn't going to be appreciated uh, at a place like that. But at the same time, the coffee world, we're all grateful for Starbucks because they... They created second wave coffee. It went from Folgers in a can for you know, 20, 40 years to Starbucks coming in and, and really expanding people's menu options for gourmet or snootier coffee. And then from there, you know, we all learn how to perfect and spend a little bit more time on quality and, and sourcing and, and how that affects every leg of the coffee production process up to the point where you're drinking it. And so you went and worked at Starbucks during college, realized that that wasn't the holy grail of coffee, and then what? Well, so I had worked at Starbucks first, and I mean, I had a manager that just really didn't appreciate anybody, and I was going to classes, and she would be really upset with me that I was five minutes late, even though I had run from class. This was not a 
shirking my responsibilities. But it got to the point where I was not enjoying the work. So I said, I'm going to quit. I'm going to wait tables. And I waited tables for a while. And then someone else, another coffee shop in a hospital kiosk in South Miami Hospital said they were hiring. And I got tired of smelling like barbecue sauce from Tony Rama's working, (laughs) waiting tables. Uh, So I got another coffee shop job. And that one was a little bit more focused on, on quality than Starbucks was, but working a stand in a kiosk in a, in a busy hospital didn't give me the opportunity to really spend as much time on quality or really kind of learn from that. It wasn't until I moved to Washington state, I actually had to fight really hard to find a job at a coffee shop. They were all full and uh, (laughs) they don't like it when you put on your resume that you worked at Starbucks. Oh, really? Yeah, because they do so much indoctrination and so much I mean, cult following about how those practices are that most coffee shops uh, are hesitant to hire somebody because you have to unlearn so many things. And that was definitely the case for me in Washington State. I had been doing coffee for six years. I've managed for four of that. And I get up there and I realize that I have not been doing coffee well at all. Any specific big eye-opener that you were like, wow, this is how they taught me it's supposed to be done and it, it just isn't? Uh, I... I think, you know, focusing on water quality and filtration, knowing that, you know, you've got a certain amount of pressure that needs to be tamped in when you're pulling espresso shots. I mean, espresso shots are so much more detailed than I had been doing as far as angles and pressure and grind size and how to dial something in. The presentation as well, with the latte art stuff, that was not something that I could do for the first six years. But this this cafe made me perfect a heart and a rosetta before I could even serve customers. So it took, oh, really? Yeah, it took me three months, I feel, to really unlearn the bad habits and how to not waste a bunch of coffee dialing it in so that it had the right balance and flavor profile. Which is different for every bean and every grind that you get, correct? Uh, yeah, every, I mean, single origins, blends, all of it, the age of the coffee, how much humidity is in the, in the coffee shop at the time, to the sorting and drying process and how they're being washed. Is it semi-washed? Is it a honey process? All of that stuff can affect the coffee well before you order from your barista that may or may not know how to tamp a shot. <laughs> That's one way of saying it. Yes. So typically I have espresso at home in the morning and one espresso in the afternoon before I work out. And there are certain places that you'll go and just like, ah, fuck this chick's working again. And it yeah. just sucks. Cause she just does it. And a lot of them, I would say the, the biggest problem that I see is that more and more they give me too much. Because they feel like, you know, a double shot isn't enough right. liquid. So I'm going to let it run longer to make sure the customer gets more, um, which ends up making it taste like shit and not really working. So Right. And and it's the volume over over quality. And I think that goes for that's the general outlook for a lot of coffee shops. And I, I assume breweries too. I, you know, I was a little scared that I came from, you know, Washington State. You should be getting less than an ounce for a shot. And you're going to pay $1.35 for that. But, you know, your market here, when you start explaining to people that are still good with Folgers and get gas station coffee that, you know, you're going to spend $1.35 on less than an ounce of a shot. I did want to have more volume at first starting out, but I also increased the dose size. Like we had a much larger Mm. coffee ratio so that you're still getting the flavor profile without just watering down an already acidic espresso shot. Yeah. Just kind of making a triple shot, I guess, almost in there. Yeah. I mean, if you, a large, a larger dose for sure. I was definitely on, on that. And even with the volume, you can have those parameters set for or semi-automatic machines. But if the barista doesn't know how to say, well, actually, this shot pulled a lot faster. It's supposed to come out a double shot within, you know, 18 seconds, uh, but more than more than 15. If you're not doing that, even if it's a set amount of water or volume, if you're not checking about grind size and watching flow rates, then it's going to not taste like good coffee. 
it's a lot more science to it than I initially thought at first. It was one of those things too that I, I love having my espresso at home, but I didn't so a lot of times I would like to try different beans from different places. And it got a little bit frustrating that every fucking time I had to adjust the the grind time, the grind um, uh, crimp or whatever. And yep. and it's just like, you know, at some point, let's just find one. I, I just, I, I like having a new bean, but it, I don't enjoy dialing it in, I guess. Well, and that's fair. I mean, and if you don't have a separate grinder for that, uh, you know, you've got a little bit residual from the bean from the last time that's in there. So you end up trying to dial it in while there's still some leftovers from the previous one. Mm-hmm. And you end up chasing your tail for the next 10 minutes as more of the new stuff comes in and the old stuff gets out. That was something I had to have separate grinders for when we had different coffees going in and seasoning the machine in the morning was part of that was getting, make, making sure you've got rid of all of the other coffee grounds in there because uh, that's going to affect the flavor profile for the next five or six shots. It's funny. We're going to try to tie coffee into beer as much as we possibly can. One example, we do grind our grains also, which are similar in the sense that they come out of the field green. They uh, essentially are germinated and then you could use the argument roasted or dried or during the malting process. And so the color of beer typically comes and the flavor of beer typically comes from how they process the grains. But we have typically one malt mill, everybody set at one setting and every color goes through it. Every different, you put wheat in there, you put barley in there, you put oats in there, whatever it is. And they just grind them all together at the same thickness. And we don't even think, you know, as much yeah. as you guys are doing that, how much we, there could be somebody who could potentially do like three different mills and different because you can do settings but every time you change the settings it's tough to get it back and oh absolutely and that's and that's a perfect example for for coffee with roasters that have those like flavored coffees i know there was a there were one or two rest, or, uh, coffee shops here that have that texas pecan flavor and i won't work with roasters that do flavored coffees because i know that they are not you know they don't have separate machines for at some point flavor. there's that residual flavor and everything yeah and that stuff leeches onto everything i mean even i won't even use the same grinder for decaf versus regular unflavored coffees because it's such a strong flavor that impacts everything unless you're flushing everything out every time yeah uh so i can see how that would affect what your expected flavor profile was simply because nobody was paying attention to detail or cleanliness and and cleaning out whatever that roaster is of their previous material all right, so we can talk about science all day. Let's get back to business. So okay. how did you uh, – we left off. You were in Washington State. You had finally been able to become an artist barista instead of just a you know, person putting fucking coffee in a cup. What happened next? Uh, well, so I got – I really started to enjoy that job. They didn't want to hire a manager before because their last manager stole from them. And I just basically – as I fought my way to get that job, I fought my way into a manager position. I knew I wasn't going to stay in Washington forever. In fact, I was just supposed to be there for a year. Uh, my roommate got a job with Microsoft and offered me to free rent if I went up there with him. Uh, Not bad. Yeah, so I wasn't I wasn't going to live there permanently. But the owner of the building and my boss got into a tiff, and the landlord ended up shutting down the coffee shop overnight. Wow! So I was kind Big of fight. without a job. Yeah, yeah, I was without a job immediately. Uh, but I had actually signed up to join the Peace Corps in, within the last year, and I was kind of waiting to see when I was going to get sent off or where or if it was going to happen because it, it took a little bit longer for me than it would normally. And I kind of decided that I was going to move back to Florida and get my old job back as the manager of the coffee shop and the hospital and kind of take what I had learned in Washington and make that a little bit better. And then I got my letter from Peace Corps saying that I was leaving in two weeks to go to West Africa. Really? Yeah. So that's where I was. And uh, I was there in West Africa for a year and a half. And that's where I got the name for the coffee shop. Korakora Coffee is what everybody called me in Village. What does that mean? 
Uh, so, like, the 25-cent version, is it, it means mixture. So it's a, a local language. In Benin, where I was stationed, there, the national language is French. But there are 61 different ethnic groups, all with their own language. Jeez. Yeah. And the village that I was in, they spoke, they were the Otamaribe people. They speak Dichamari. And uh, a lot of volunteers for the last 15 years or so, only a couple of them were good enough at French to be able to learn some of the local language. So I had a tutor there and he would teach me how to say stuff in the local language. And one of the first things I wanted to learn how to say was that I wanted, well, they have markets, <laughs> they have, they have, they have uh, shopping markets, right? But yeah. the whole shopping market is based around beer. Their, their local beer called Chukutu. So you've got half of the market selling vegetables and salt and the rest of it is people getting drunk on still fermenting in your in your gourd beer sounds like a party it, it was great so you know you get whatever essentials you need and then you spend the rest of the afternoon drinking but one of the first things i learned how to say was that i wanted 100 francs of the mixture of the heavily fermented and the lightly fermented so you say that by indu datapita kora kora and uh, most of the people there especially since i was only there for a week were surprised that the white dude with torn jeans and a backwards hat bothered to learn some of their language so that ended up being more of a, a cross-cultural, like the mixture of Cora Cora was the mixture of the, the language and the culture and just how I preferred my beer. Just like the rest of the world, obviously, the uh, you broke the social barriers over beer. Uh, right. And- <laughs> beer can change the world for sure. What else does, I guess? Uh, well, not to the same extent. Uh, hopefully most of it for, for those social connections and those kind of things. That's great. So how long did you do the beer? I was about 16 months. And you know, I had to get back. There was some family stuff I needed to take care of. I was I was very lucky that I, I loved my post and the people in it. Uh, I was very fortunate that they cared about me, and I've still got lifelong friends that are host country nationals, let alone other volunteers. But I came back, and I was planning on my mom lives here. This was home of record. I was going to hang out for a bit, go back to Florida. And what I wanted to do was find a coffee shop that I could help make better you know, kind of appeal myself to the owner and try to get a second location and then manage to spot my work way up to being valuable enough that I could be a partner. So that was my goal. And I was going to do that in South Florida. But I got this job here to kind of wait until I got my rate adjustment allowance from from Peace Corps. And the original owners of that coffee shop there were looking to sell within a couple of months. And then the new couple was an older couple, very nice. They had never been in coffee before. And they went to buy it and kind of asked me if I would stay to help them out. They just decided this is a great investment. Uh, yeah. How could you lose you know, small business and coffee? Incidentally, we have the same story with just about every brewery owner yep. recently. So, Well, and that, and that it's just it. They liked coffee shops. They wanted to hang out. They were retired. They just wanted to have something to do that would at least pay for itself and not have to work so hard. Funny, because the reason I don't own a coffee shop is that exact reason. Yeah. Um, because... <laughs> I'm one of those people that I feel like if you own the business, you're going to be called upon to do every single job that's in there at some point in time. That's right. And there's 0% chance I'm getting up at 4 o'clock in the fucking morning to open the coffee shop. I love coffee and I would drink it all day long, but I do not want to be the owner of a coffee shop. (laughs) Yeah. Learning to love AMs was an acquired taste for me, for sure. I I still don't. I still don't like getting up that early. Uh, When it's rope memory, it's a little bit easier. But that was just it. Like most coffee shop owners and I think a lot of business owners that go into it not as this is what I'm going to use for my livelihood. I have to be good at this. I have to make it work instead of just have more of a flippant. That sounds like fun and I'll just hire a bunch of people and I won't have to be there every day all day. And that's just not the case. But they learned that as well, not just the work part, but I think the original owners may have been a little less than genuous about how much profit it was making per month. (laughs) So he was a little surprised at how much money was hemorrhaging 
his first few months there. So it was not going to be a, uh, well, initially he told me if I stayed there for a couple of years, he'd set me up wherever I wanted to go. This oh, was going to sure. be my outlet. Just, okay, instead of it being out of state, it'll be here and then maybe I'll go somewhere else. But it took a year and a half just to get us to profitable, not losing money. And So he made promises based on bad information. And unfortunately, you yeah. got stuck there longer than you uh, But it was nice. I, I was really lucky to have him. In fact, uh, you know, he's 78, but he's probably my best friend. Yeah. And we go hang out. I, since even I bought it from him now that I'm out of it, we're, we're still, we're still really close. So I got lucky with him. He was willing to try to help me out and support me. And that was what happened after a year and a half, we finally got to profitable. He made a lot of the changes that I had recommended, but it got to a place where he did not want to do anymore. It was not fun waking up. It was not fun dealing the type of clientele that you get at a coffee shop. Sometimes is stressful. Uh, so he's not like that in a brewery at all. They're all, I'm surely not right. And they're all, they're all sober and and being responsible. (laughs) Yeah. And, and loving and caring for their fellow human beings. <laughs> yeah. So there was definitely a lot of that. And uh, so he fronted me. I mean, that was that's just it. If you try to open up something from scratch, you know, you need to borrow a lot of money. you got to put in 100% of the hours all the time. And I was lucky that he was willing to carry a loan for me. That's, you know, something that most people don't have that opportunity. And he sold it to me for really cheap because he knew how much work was going to have to go into it. And that's what I did. I worked 90 hours a week for... You know, the first several months and, you know, you talked about, you talked about when you go into a place and it's like, oh, that person's working. You know, I don't want to order that drink from this person because they don't know what they're doing yet. And that was something that happened to me in Washington. You know, when my manager wasn't there, like, oh, is, is Adam around? Oh, yeah. No, like, no, Adam's not around. It's, it's just me, unfortunately. Oh, Josh is pulling shots today. I know. Uh. So, so that was the goal was with my staff was to try to get everybody and you can't, you know, but I trained everybody. I didn't give that job out to somebody else. Cause if you expect a certain level from yourself and you're trying to train people to get there, there's going to be some, some drop off where it's not met because they just don't necessarily love the place like you do. Uh, trying to get them where I didn't have to hear that from customers that they didn't want to come in one day because the, the new girl wasn't making shots. It's like, I will sit train and spend extra time with you if you need to learn it. I want to not worry about quality when I'm not here. What's well, cool that you developed that. Obviously, the, the people wouldn't care if they were putting enough milk and sugar in it. So people were caring about the quality of the coffee. That's good. Well, I think that's it. You you get people to work for you that like your industry. And I imagine trying to get somebody that's a brewer here that doesn't like sour beer, doesn't like anything else that you appreciate, you're going to have a hard time having him give that same focus to quality. Well, even just uh, staff at the tasting room. So um, about a year ago, which is amazing because we've been doing this for almost a decade. But about a year ago, I realized that I, I didn't need to hire anybody with experience. In fact, that was almost worse. And so for the tasting room, what I started hiring was people that were fans. Do you like yeah. the beer? I can teach you how to pour a fucking beer in a glass. Yeah. That's not challenging. But you've got to be a fan and you've got to die for the what we do. And and that's been fantastic. I mean, that people will, you'll, I can train them, but even when I train them on the nuts and bolts of the beer, I can't train them on the passion of being able to convince somebody they should be drinking it. I found that same line. I found my best staff were me hiring regular people that came in and got real drink, real drinks, you know, not the, not the frozen <laughs> frappuccino stuff, but like real coffees, black coffee or, you know, macchiatos or caps or something like that, where I knew that they were appreciating the espresso. Cause if I could find somebody that appreciated that, I can teach them how to do it. But yeah, I, I was the same. I was a little hesitant to hire anybody that had Starbucks experience for the same reason that I was frustrated <laughs> that no one wanted to hire me because I had Starbucks experience. It's right. hard to unlearn bad habits than it is to teach somebody good habits from the start. So this is all happening in Florida still? 
Uh, no, this, I mean, this, we're talking about the coffee shop where Korokora stood okay. uh, currently. Okay. So, so I didn't realize, how did you, you moved here? I moved back from West Africa after Peace Corps because my mom was still here. This oh, was okay. home of record. So I was, I was helping her out and kind of getting us situated and I needed a job at the time. So I actually got a job waiting tables part-time at Pat's Place where I had worked as a uh, 14-year-old <laughs> busting tables because uh, I couldn't get enough hours at the coffee shop. But it was only supposed to be for a few months before I left and went back to South Florida. The new owners had kind of coerced me to stay for, and give them two years. Okay. So what was, did they call it then? Uh, it was Green Grind Coffee Company. Okay. I think I remember that. Yeah. Uh, they kept the same name. They didn't want to make a lot of changes, but at the same time, the clientele weren't, you know, I, I, I told the, I told the second owner, I said, look, there were 12 other places to get coffee in town. I said, we're kind of tucked away in a corner. We're not getting it because it's convenient, but we should do one thing right. You can offer some other things, but you should really try to perfect to draw people there. And I said, I really wasn't seeing anybody doing really good coffee. I can show you how to do that. Uh, so with that change, we got a new clientele for sure, but it started growing and growing until uh, I tried to get him to change to a roaster that I worked with out of Washington State. My manager there has his own roasting company, and so I brought in his coffee down here because uh, it's I mean, it's consistent. It's all nerdy United States Priest and Championship <laughs> Brewing Cup uh, award stuff, but it was a friend to me. It was It was local to me. And then by the time we started doing that, I think he was about out and I finished like, distancing yourself. From a, you know, if you're taking over a coffee shop from somewhere else, like you either got to do exactly what they've been or you need to start over. Completely reinvent it. Yeah. yeah. So we changed the name, coat of paint, and kind of finished tweaking the rest of the coffee. And, and we did that for seven and a half years. And I sold it to one of my employees, a four-year-long employee, and her mom bought it. So it's another female in business in town, and they're keeping the name. You have a high focus towards quality. And for the record, she never asked me if I want room for cream. Oh, yeah. Avery. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. She was definitely one of the better employees for that too. So and I'm excited for them and I still go in there. There's always going to be a spot for coffee. I think for me, if I won the lottery and I could do anything I wanted, I would probably part-time barista somewhere, but owning and operating, like you said, it's day to day, bell to bell. Yeah. yeah, You get to do less of the making coffee when you're focused on operations for everything else. And I I think I missed that aspect. Okay. Kind of a pretty good lead in to, uh, what we're going to go through next is kind of the, the mistakes that I wrote about in the book. And I thought it was really interesting to see how those translated to what you did in your industry and in your business. Yeah. But let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's go through all of that and just uh, tell me, tell me kind of the struggles you went through. You know what I mean? So, sure. Sounds good. All right. We'll be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say something like, 
y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, we are back with Josh Cunningham, the best barista in New Braunfels. <laughs> Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. Thanks for spending your time with me today. I really appreciate it. Uh, so again, I want to talk about some of the mistakes are in the book. There were 10, not all of them apply directly to your business as far as I'm aware, but you might be able to open my eyes on that. So mistake one, I'm just going to be completely honest. I think this is one of those ones that for me, and I am a connoisseur in my own head of many of the things that I like to do and coffee obviously is one of them. Beer is another one, wine. Anyway, so I always thought that you guys had the best cup in town, hands down. And that there really wasn't, in my opinion, a second place. So when I would go somewhere else to have coffee, I was not going somewhere else to have coffee because I wanted a better coffee. I was going because it was closer to the place I was going to go to or, you know, I didn't want to go back to your side of town, even though it's on the way home. But so it just depended on the day. But so, so obviously you, you did that on purpose. You try and you did win some awards, I think even for barista through the newspaper or stuff like that. Yeah. So obviously quality was important to you. How much do you think that contributed to either your success or your failure, I guess, um, at the end of the day. So. No, that's fair. I, you know, integrity is, I think, the biggest thing, right? So you're going to have to make sacrifices based on your market. If you want your business to keep the doors open and you want to continue doing this thing that you like, there's, there's stuff that you're going to have to fudge on a little bit so that you can guarantee the doors being open. So I think that I would have done things differently if it was just my shop and I just wanted to do what I liked and didn't care about what anybody else thought Mm -hmm. or my customers thought. I probably would have made some changes, but overall, I wanted to create a place I would want to go for coffee. So that meant buying better quality stuff and being willing to throw stuff away, perfecting it, than to just kind of throw it together and, and cut costs wherever possible. But there are plenty of places, especially ones with low overhead you know, kiosks that don't have any plumbing inside that are stationed around town that serve more of the community. And if you make something quick and Meaning fast, they do more volume? Yeah, they, yeah, it's a lot more volume. There's, they're convenient and they hit every neighborhood and some of the surrounding ones too. And they are friendly and they are fast and it's a sweet drink. So you don't really have to focus on the coffee when it's overpowered by other stuff. And that's certainly a profitable model. And that, those are ends up being the people that I would lose to and a best coffee in town. It's just that, you know, cause it's a popularity contest more too. And those, yeah. And they, they know of it and you actually have to go out of your way to come see me. So yeah, I, I think quality is drove people. I think that gave me my longevity because I've seen of those 12 shops that were available uh, to get coffee at the time. We've got a lot more of the drive through ones. We've got less businesses that made it. So it's, and that's even before COVID. I don't think we really oh, lost absolutely. me because of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Um, those places obviously are not ones that I typically go to because the coffee itself, because I just drink espresso, the coffee, I wouldn't say it's bad. It's not fun to drink. Let's put it that way. But I'm not their clientele. Right. So it's weird every time I go. They're the ones asking me for room for cream. They're the ones that ask me or, or always over poor. But my daughter likes to go there. She's 15 years old. 
Yeah. She wants some shit blended with a Red Bull or whatever it is, and it right. works, right? So for, and for us, the parallel now is, of course, the seltzers, the, the smoothie beers. Right. They are cutting into our market. They're cutting into our margin. And, and obviously, you saw the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you're going to see trendy stuff. And, and Starbucks is notorious for that, where they, they kind of create this artificial scarcity by only offering it for so long or... <laughs> You know, it's a different color, but... Well, I think unicorn stuff's only around. Like, it only comes out of the right. ground once a year or something like that, right? And I'm, I'm hoping it's less <laughs> of that. You know, I always see these trends and I'm like, I can't wait for this one to die. Being in it for 17 years, I've seen I've seen a lot of different stuff come in and go out of the coffee world that I'm glad I never had to have people ask me to do again. Like what? what? What's, your, what's your one you hate the most? Uh, but there are so many. There are so <laughs> many. <laughs> Get a little PTSD going on. Yeah, I, I think... The unicorn stuff, the unicorn frap, where you had to have change color things and it's mm-hmm. sort of that glittery thing. If it's going to slow down my process without really being able to mark up the way that it should to bring me profit, it's not something I was interested in. Like the bulletproof coffee. Oh, yeah. That's one of my least favorite things that have come through. Did you guys make that? No, because I don't want to put ghee butter in my blender <laughs> because you think it's going to help boost your metabolism in a way that the caffeine by itself, first thing in the morning, or a glass of water will do first thing in the morning for your metabolism. Of course, everything's going to taste better with oil and butter on it, and I assume coffee as well, but I didn't want to... The amount of markup I would need to pay for the ghee butter and those oils was going to be something that wasn't for everybody and it slows down my ability to serve more people, especially in a drive through setting. Added complexity without a return on investment. Yeah. And I, and I want to push for stuff that doesn't need it because my whole goal was to try to get you whatever diet you're on. It's like, well, you have something that's keto friendly or you have something that's gluten free friendly. And I'm like, well, black coffee fits every diet. <laughs> you know, it's three calories and for a 16 ounce and it's should be good enough that it doesn't need all of that other stuff in it. And it took me a while to stop being the snooty hipster about it. Like, I need to be more understanding. Oh, you stopped? Uh, to a certain degree. <laughs> to a certain degree. Again, integrity and pride, but you got to not be so judgy. I think the idea is, is allowing yourself to have other options to, to please people that might be coming with them that want to come back. But, you know, we had smoothies, but I'm not a Jamba Juice. That can't be my first focus. It might take forever or two. Wouldn't it be harder? And I don't know about the return on investment on that, but it seems like it wouldn't be very profitable for smoothies. And, I, and I'd have to spend a lot of fridge space on keeping fresh produce, and there'd be a lot mm-hmm. of waste produce because people weren't necessarily coming there for smoothies. You have to do the volume. Yeah. yeah. So I didn't want to get the jet stuff, which is just all dyes and high fructose corn syrup. So I got a 100% crushed fruit with no added sugar and tried to find a, a happy medium between offering something that wasn't terrible while at the same time not taking my focus away from putting out my primary product, which was good coffee. So I guess kind of the, the overarching question then is what kind of response did you get to that insane, I don't know what I guess maybe not insane, but uh, focus on uh, quality. So obviously I enjoyed it and that's one sure. of the reasons that we know each other. <laughs> but uh, as far as other people, did you have a big, cli- a big enough clientele that appreciated the quality that you just didn't know what to do with all the extra cash they were giving you? Oh, yeah. No, that was never the case. Um, it, it finally started getting there towards the last couple of years. You know, I think people moving to this community that are from beer and wine and coffee enthusiast places where it's a, it's a little bit more part of the culture are here. They were looking for places that did the coffee that they liked and on the Pacific side or the Eastern side, like you can find good shops. It's a lot more ubiquitous. So as that community moves in here, they're looking at reviews about what coffee's good. And if somebody's got a review online that's uh, 
you know, it's the best frozen frap I've ever had. Like it's sweet and delicious. <laughs> or someone talks about that was the smoothest espresso I've had. And I haven't had one like that since I lived in this other place. That was, that was what the, my clientele was. So when they saw that or saw those reviews, they would, they'd find me. So if you were writing my book for me on the coffee side, would you recommend somebody focus on quality? I, if they're if they're trying to make money, if in the they're industry. trying to make money, no. <laughs> uh, I think there's plenty of market out there that it, the most people you can serve at the the fastest rate and make it sweet and sugary, then I think you're going to be a lot more profitable. But you may not like your job as much as I liked my job. And Being, you wouldn't have a soul, obviously. And well, so. <laughs> I mean, some some people take that money and that freedom and they go do other things that they liked. What I wanted was to have a career where I enjoyed doing it, where I didn't need a break from it all the time because I just enjoyed making it. Uh, and integrity allowed me to do that. Integrity for quality of coffee allowed me to enjoy the job, even when it was hard. I wasn't making that much money. I was still proud of what I was doing. Which I think is important. You can always look back on that, right? Which yeah, is important. absolutely. I, I felt good about the decisions I made for, for doing that. So the, the second mistake I put in the book is uh, start small and build. So obviously, <laughs> I'm talking in that one about the physical plant of how I made the beer. I don't know if you have an example of that. Did you always use the same espresso machine? Did you have to upgrade at some point? Maybe, maybe I guess the, the physical plant of what you had, and, and there's an intimate tap room towards the end. That's more about the seating and the actual place, but as far as like how you made the coffee. Right. And so, I mean, I think that applies to, to coffee as well, but you've got to be within your means, right? We had, I think we had talked about not having enough money set aside to cover your regular expenses as far as you first start going. If you can't guarantee that you can pay your labor and your all your electric, electricity and rent, if you can't do that for at least six months, then I think you're, you're in for some hard times. And if you're planning that and you don't have that much money to start with, don't expand and make a huge real estate purchase or a, a bigger space where you, you need to have so many people in every day just to get by with rent. So you make concessions about what can I do to stay profitable? But starting big, it's a good gamble. You know, if you can serve more of the community, you have a, a huge setup, you can find what fits and works and then hone in on those. But it's a, it's a risk because that much money going into your equipment. You know, you can spend thousands of dollars on grinders. I don't think that that's necessary. I think you can do great stuff off of manual one, plus they're easy to work on. I feel like that's something mm -hmm. where you can cut back on costs, keep it small, because it's easier to maintain and have longevity with your business. To give you a little bit more example, when I say I started small, uh, I started with equipment that was not intended for the job right and so i guess in a sense it would and actually probably fairly legitimately it was almost like using a high-end home coffee grinder and right. a high-end home espresso maker for you to run your business and so as much as i would agree that i think that there's a lot of ways to do it cheaper what i learned is that some of the smaller equipment was made in such a way that it didn't allow you to make beer the way it needed i couldn't make world-class beer on that system i could have made good beer i could have made right. okay, okay. Beer. But I could never have made world-class beer. And obviously, there's a humongous range of prices of espresso machines. But at some point, there's got to be a break even that if you don't spend at least two grand, it's going to be a piece of shit. Or if you spend 10, you're going to – I don't know. I'm asking. So Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Uh, you know, you – again, starting big, you could get an espresso machine with four group heads and two extra steaming wands. But is that going to be you know, best use of your space? And But is that also going to help you meet the demand as you grow? 
So finding refrigerators and those things that are going to be able to hold all the things that you need, definitely better to have quality stuff that does maybe the median that you can replace one thing at a time and not have to replace everything just to hit your, your quotas. One of the things that I found is that there was a level two of where the spray balls and this equipment, for example, allowed me to clean the edges and the corners and you know, completely right. get it right. Is there an espresso machine that doesn't pull the shot right um, oh. at a price point and, that, and it, that doesn't make good coffee, you know? Yeah, I think you can make do. Again, it's just like what you were talking about with, you know, serving commercial use from a home use. You could you could definitely have a coffee shop that just has one group head from a home, a home brewer. But I think that when you start talking about making 100 drinks in an hour, you probably had to have something they can keep up. And mm-hmm. one of the biggest things about homeless press machines and some of the cheaper ones is that you can't have enough boiler pressure to run both the nine bars or nine atmospheres that you need to pull the shot and steam milk at the same time. The pressure drops <laughs> can only do one at a time. Yeah, yeah. So you can do one at a time and whatever you did second isn't going to come out as good. So having double boiler machine with at least two group heads will allow you to save space and, you know, maybe only spend $15,000 on a decent one. <laughs> That's it, huh? That's yeah, that's cheap. that's it. But you also, if something that you can find parts for easily, uh, I don't know how often you had to call somebody to come fix something here that you maybe didn't know. I know anytime I had to call a tech for something, I'm standing over their shoulder watching what they do, so I don't have to call about this thing again. Yeah, because the flight and the everything it ends up. Our problem, obviously, with beer is that there isn't a local rep ever with beer equipment. You've got maybe five manufacturers in the country, and that's stretching it to some of the small guys that make one machine a year. That seems like a a very few suppliers for how many breweries did you say we have in the country now? Yeah, 8,000. Yeah, that seems... I know a guy actually that had ordered a $100,000 filter, and they had kind of left, left it. They moved facilities, and so they had left it sort of unused for a while. To restart it, they were having issues with it, and to have the rep come out was going to be $12,000. Luckily, they were able to figure it out with, you know, Zoom and a guy with a brain and, and figuring out the parts. But at the end of the day, like, every time they would have had the guy come out, it's going to be twelve k. That's a fuckload of money, like, to maintain equipment. Yeah, I feel bad about bitching about $100 an hour for repair <laughs> text to end the drive time. Wow. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but the proprietary nature of some of the equipment, there just isn't a rep in every city and every state, and so there's not, not much you can do on the repair side. So it's even more important that you learn from whatever you didn't know how to do the first time. Yeah, I'm actually still fighting, Don, and I haven't decided how much of this story I'm going to share because I'm kind of angry about it, but <laughs> I'm fighting with my equipment manufacturer, and it's one of the million mistakes that I made. I purchased equipment from a New York company, but it was built by SK Group, which is from Slovenia. So I'm literally talking to a guy in broken Russian on his, uh, FaceTime yeah. while he's showing him the, like, I'm turning the phone to show him the inside of the control panel and, you know, him trying to figure it out and he can't figure it out. I don't know what it will cost to get homeboy over here from Slovenia, but I'm not paying it. Whatever it yeah. is, can figure out. That's an expensive plane ticket for, yeah. for mastery, I would have assumed, or knowledge would have been stateside, at least somebody. They have two people and they don't know how to do it. The system's eight years old. And so like nobody in the company knows how to work on one that's however many generations back. Is that eight years make it obsolete? Apparently. Is it that quick of a turnover? Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like, uh, yeah, that's nuts. Coffee doesn't have that. The machines, if you take care of them, will last 20, 30 years. Wow. The physical structure of the brewery, like the actual fermenters and the things that don't move, there's not much that can happen unless you hit a forklift in it or something like that. But you replace valves here and there and obviously gaskets, but... 
the uh, control panel, unfortunately, is electronics, and so that tends to be a little more of an Man. issue. Man, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot. Twelve grand. All right. So mistake three was I uh, a couple of times uh, made the mistake of hiring hiring someone to make beer instead of investing in an actual brewer that you know had a had a pedigree, an education, an understanding, a palate, whatever you know, fill in the blank. Right? What are the things I didn't look for? Obviously, you mentioned that you spent a lot of time training your staff, and it was important to find the right people. So you were ahead of me in that game, but how did you go about doing that? Did you, how did you recruit them? How did you train them? Like, what were you looking for? Cause you obviously were the manager the whole time, right? Right. So you were talking about your support staff essentially at that point. Well, and I, I eventually got to a place, you know, when these, when these girls had been with me for, you know, over four years, they, they knew what I wanted to do. They, they knew from mistakes they'd made, like how to deal with customers. So I was able to take some more time off and take a step back. Cause I knew that at least two of these people could train and, and, do what I want them to do. But for the most part, guaranteeing consistency was, was a big deal. So having somebody that was dedicated to training, so it was all uniform was better. I had the knowledge of just doing this job and having trained people for nine of the last years before I opened. So it's not such a big deal. Uh, you find people learn differently, different training styles work better with others. But since I knew how to produce a coffee, I knew the steps involved and and dialing stuff in and making it perfect, it was easier to teach. But if somebody that just liked coffee and, and appreciated it but had never made it at home or had worked somewhere were to come in and say they wanted to open up a coffee shop, yeah, <laughs> most roasters, when you find somebody that is going to provide your, your coffee beans for you, they will send trainers down to teach your staff how to do stuff. Um, so that's that's not uncommon. So if you're needing somebody, yeah, don't just get somebody that has made coffee at someplace down the street for three years and didn't manage to come in. You want to have somebody that this is their baby because it's their coffee. They, they know how to make it taste the way they want to make it taste. So they'll teach your staff. That's crazy. One of the sponsors of the podcast is a local grain supplier, a nationwide grain supplier. They happen to also be local in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, I, you know, great customer service. They do a great job getting us the things and their pricing is actually badass. But uh, they've never come help me brew. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and, and you would. And you, you don't in the industry. Jesse, if you're listening, you should uh, get in your car and get the fuck down here and get me out of it. That's awesome, though. That's, that's a level of service, obviously, that we don't see in the beer industry. And, and we wouldn't. There's a lot of variation, too, in like, what you do. But um, that's well, cool that they help you. And then once you learn how to do it, then just like with your repair stuff, once you learn how to do it, then you, you're able to teach it to somebody else and not have to have that expense. But uh, you want it done right, so you want to make sure you train people to do it right. Oh, makes sense. So did you have a great way of finding them? You said you hired a lot of uh, people out of your that, that were your fans. Did you put up a flyer or did you talk to the guy when he came in like, dude, that's my guy. Like, how do I get him? How do you- I think that's that's been the case. Um, there have been people where I have nerded out and I happen to need somebody and ask them if they want a job and they've come to work for me and that worked out the other times it's really been lucky. I just had somebody tell me they're going to leave. They gave me, you know, four weeks notice and right around the time that they were about to leave somebody that had been, you know, a college student that's been sitting and, and getting good coffee with me for years asked if I'm hiring. So I just kind of got lucky with that. That's probably that time in the Peace Corps. Got some uh, positive karma coming your way. Uh, maybe, yeah. man. I don't know. <laughs> what I do recommend is don't hire your regulars kids. Don't hire your regulars' yeah. kids. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. They say, oh, no, my daughter would love working here. I love coming here. I'm like, unless your your daughter or son comes here all the time to get coffee, like, I'm, we're friends. I want to continue to have you as a customer. Yeah. So don't send me your kids. The translation of that is that I want my daughter to work here. <laughs> right. I want my daughter to work here. And if 
she's unhappy or she comes back upset, it's going to be your fault and right. certainly not my my precious little baby. That would yeah, it would never be her fault. Yeah. No, never. So I I did have an idea something like that might happen, and then I dealt with that firsthand, and uh, we'll never do that again. Well, so uh, mistake four was brew whatever is popular instead of whatever is profitable, and we have talked quite a bit about some of the garbage products that are slung around in the quote-unquote coffee world right. that do or don't taste like coffee. How did you decide when a trend came through? Obviously, you know, Starbucks sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of this fucking unicorn bullshit. Right. How'd you decide that that wasn't something you were going to do? Or in the case that you did decide, how did you decide what you were going to do? I think it would be different if I had started out a brand new location in a place I wasn't familiar with. I think my ability to say stick stick to what you like and what you appreciate is going to be better because the better you can talk about it, the more you appreciate a product, the easier it is to sell it. But uh, starting off in a brand new area you throw everything at the wall and hope it sticks, I think is the knee-jerk reaction. I don't, I don't think that's ultimately what you want. Certainly not if you're pushing the quality name because you don't want to have a menu, whether it's craft brewer and coffee that looks like the Cheesecake Factory. You know, like <laughs> 14 pages long and you have to use the phone to go right. through it. Yeah. Uh, you know, want to keep things simple. One thing that I felt like I catered to a certain degree was whatever flavor you had. Like you didn't discontinue flavors. So if you want hmm. pumpkin spice, like people constantly, do you guys have pumpkin spice yet? Year round? All year long. All uh. year long I have pumpkin spice. And if somebody asks me and it's a flavor that I can get, you know, I'll hold on to a couple bottles of it. So I probably had a lot more flavor options than most gourmet coffee shops are, but mostly it's because if that one person comes back or they went out of their way to come be here and all they wanted was gingerbread in July, then hold on to that. Oh, and that's not very expensive really for you to do? No, not really. It just takes up a lot of space. You know, you can buy cheaper syrups, but I don't recommend that either. I try to stay away from anything that was high fructose corn syrup and just did pure cane sugar when you can which makes a big difference in the overall flavor. Yeah, and it also makes a big difference about price cost, too, because if someone's just got their syrups from Lavazza at Costco and they're only charging 25 cents for you know, a pump of flavor, but I'm getting my stuff from 1883 that costs twice as much money and they get a little frustrated at you know, 50 cents. That's always a challenge. How do you get your customer to agree that uh, it's worth the it's price? Worth, exactly. Yeah. That's, I think, no matter what the industry, anything that you're selling is, that's always the case. You're, you don't want to frustrate people. But you also want to take pride in your product and get what you're asked. Apparently, unless you're selling cars, car people like think it's better if it's more expensive. Like, oh, for some yeah. reason, I don't know why that is. Uh, you know, I think it takes a special person to to really enjoy the used car sales type of world. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> One of the games I like to play with everybody that comes on the show that's in the beer side is what's your most ridiculous beer prediction. And you're welcome to go that one if you want, but I'm also curious if you want to tell me what the next stupid trend is going to be in coffee. Well, I don't know, man. Uh, talking about putting mushrooms in your coffee now, I think, uh, is a trend I didn't see coming. I don't That's... see that one lasting very long. Uh, that was never something I got into. Like, I, I just didn't want to have that kind of earthy note to the coffee. Coffee already kind of has that, and they're usually fighting the earthy notes to get to actual flavors. So adding the mushrooms wasn't really a flavor enhancer for me. Uh, and there are plenty of good things for you that maybe you get from just eating raw foods as opposed to trying to incorporate coffee in it. Um, yeah, but that's way harder to do. Come on. Yeah. Uh, you can't I, eat raw foods at McDonald's. I don't believe. Do McDonald's have raw foods still? Yeah, I don't think so. Okay. But that, that's just it. I, like, there are things that you should get from somewhere else. It's the CBD oil coffee. Like, I'm, I'm all for it, but uh, I'm all for CBD. But infusing stuff into your coffee, I think, 
in general. And most roasters will tell you that if you're selling pre-flavored coffee, if you've got hazelnut coffee that's coming in, the guy's not proud of his work. You know, he <laughs> bought cheaper beans and that's the thing with Starbucks, right? Starbucks cannot supply quality coffee to every location worldwide. Like, there's not enough high quality coffee to feed all of those places. So they buy, they buy varying levels and cost cost, uh, cost points of coffee. And then they blend that together and they over roast it because they're trying to cook out any imperfections or any impurities that are in that roast or what flaws might have been there so that it tastes uniform. That's why everybody will complain about Starbucks at tasting burnt. Well, it kind of is because they're trying to roast it so that it does, it will taste the same whether you're in Nebraska or Norway. Mm. When you talk about the stuff that are trendy with coffee, where you're taking away from what that coffee is, I was less into it. The cold foam thing for cold brew is popular now where you whip cold cream and add syrups to it. Oh, so the, the cream itself has flavor in it? Yeah. Uh, which to me, I mean, I, I loved my cold brew so much that I was, I, people ask for them for cream. I would give them very little to work <laughs> with because I wanted them to try it without needing that stuff. Because if you have a quality product, you shouldn't, I didn't think it was necessary to gimmick it, make it gimmicky and, and throw something else on top of it instead of just appreciate what it is. Do you think your consumers disagree with you? I mean, I think I stayed in business as long as I did because that I had, I had enough people that felt that way. Well, obviously it matters if, if the product itself is as good as you think it is too. So well, and I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Well, so we're going to take a quick break and then I'm going to come back and I've got a few more questions. One of them is going to be about one of your competitors. So we're going to have some fun with that one. So, all right. Sounds good. We'll see you in a minute. So, Hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Welcome back. So the mistake five in the book was use a mobile canner. And I go into all the math and science about why um, there's no profit in doing that for most people. And the exception being, of course, if you do mobile canning and sell it all at your tasting room, your margin is such that you can actually make a decent money with it. And, and you, so you didn't do any sort of packaging, if I remember correctly, out, right? No, there was discussion about doing a cold brew where we'd bottle it up. But for the same reasons that you talked about in your book, it, it was not feasible or profitable to rent out or get you know your own label on there to have distribution there as well. I think there was more work into making cold brew and the type of you know vats and canisters that they've got and cleaning them out using the nitro CO2 aspect to them. Mm-hmm. I think that added a level of necessary quality control in keeping those clean that I was able to provide or to put forth and still do the other things I needed to. So I wasn't too intrigued by the idea of being in charge of the bottling, although I think a lot of people ask me if I would sell a six pack of the cold brew I made. Well, obviously spacing then becomes an issue. And, and yeah. even for us, we ran into that where packaging wasn't really part of my original business plan. Not that I would have been able to have a bigger building. We have what we have, but 
once we started doing 300 cases at a time of pickle fucker, right. we quickly realized that we don't have anywhere to put 300 cases, <laughs> uh, nor do we have anywhere to put the 300 cases that we are going to bottle the next day that right. are empty. And so it, it just, it became a mess. And obviously you guys didn't have a lot of space either. But um, one of the questions that I kind of had, so one of you, I'm sure there's a lot of competitors that do this, but I think it's weird when you have a coffee shop that doesn't roast the beans that makes a cold brew. How can you, can you just do that and then call it your cold brew or would it be the roaster's cold brew? I oh, don't... I see. I, I mean, I don't know. I think you're taking a value out of product. So he's selling me roasted coffee beans and then how, how I decide ratios and what I add to it, I think is, is up to you to add value to it and you can make it your own. My roaster was comfortable me just selling him as my coffee, even though he roasted it. He's like, I don't care if my name's on it because packaging was an issue. So we just had the craft paper bags that we rolled up and put a sticker on. And that was certainly just his product. Whereas the cold brew, I made mine differently than he made it. The way we did our cold brew, I don't know anybody that does it quite like that. And I think it gave a very unique taste. So I, I'd like to think that if I were going to bottle it, it would be our recipe to do so. Yeah, it's not a unique take on it. Right. Okay. Uh, but again, it was just, I'd rather just have somebody come in and say, I want a gallon and take it home and I'll make <laughs> you a gallon, put it in the water jug and you're, you're off. Yeah. Way easier for everybody. Yeah. Because obviously then too, you've got somebody distributing it for you. The margins are off and yeah. You know. and, and the storage, like all of those aspects that get into getting it to the person that eventually spends money ends up bringing up your costs. And it's like how much of my effort, because that was one of your formulas that you had in there in your book about how much time am I putting in? Does it take to make this batch of this and then distribute it? And what am I making on each keg or what am I making on each bottle? And is that worth the time I'm spending? Whereas this other one doesn't require as much effort and I've got a higher margin on it. How much time do you want to spend doing multiple options? And is that, is it worth it at all? I think that's one of the kind of the focuses of the book was to make people think about all those different questions. Yeah. There's a bunch that I think we talk about those sometimes when, we, when we're talking to each other and, and having industry conversations. But I think a lot of times we're not taking honest looks at, you know, that entire channel of my business should probably die <laughs> or, 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 or right. I should double down on that. Or Right. And I think a lot of people don't understand, I, you know, what the costs of just disposables are. If you're, you've got a front of house, you know, napkins, straws, all that other stuff where you're not really incorporating the cost of that into the cost of each beer. But if you're not aware of how that, how that price might change or unexpectedly now like your styrofoam products went up. Yeah. Or you know, just can't get them. You're yeah. Cardboard. Yeah. So it, it, People don't realize that. And there was some Reddit forum about the lady that got mad that she got charged for the lemon and the, the tea she got. She went to some coffee shop, asked for hot water, <laughs> brought her own tea, asked for a lemon, and he charged her 50 cents, and she lost her mind and said, well, look, every free thing that I gave out, you know, the cup, the, the amount of time for labor, the division of electricity for that few minutes when I had to use the machine to get you free hot water, that costs something. And you're sitting in a chair that somebody else could be generating revenue out of. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think people that have never been in service or never cared to want to learn more at whatever job they were at don't realize that. But yeah. it's on. But it's on you to. Yeah, you're the asshole. That you're the, you're yeah. still the asshole. Yeah. Exactly. So mistake six was if you fuck up, don't dump it. Obviously, you couldn't have poured a perfect cup every time. Not realistic, right? So right. how? So you had some quality parameters in which you were willing to let things go outside of the business. How did you decide what they were? And then also more importantly, how did you um, convey that to your staff to also pull the plug when they did the wrong thing? And then what was the policy? Right. Um, well, because it's unavoidable. Your people are going to make mistakes on something. You can have every notebook labeled and legible and printed and have every step to be followed to make 
something the same as you made it every other time and people will still fuck up. So I think the idea was trying to take as much barista error out of something as possible. Like with the cold brew, you know, we're making two gallons at a time. If you had the the grinder set for regular drip coffee and you're at the end of your shift and you're making it because it takes 12 hours to make overnight. Uh, if you're not paying attention and you grind it on the wrong setting, that's going to make it taste like shit. I mean, cold <laughs> brew is very fickle. Wasting two and a half gallons and 13 hours worth of time that I can't just show up in the morning and go, oh shit, this tastes awful. I need to make a new one and have it be ready that day. So but, what did you do to say we're out of cold brew that day? Yeah. If, it, if they messed up, then we were out of cold brew. Hmm. And I just had to make some that night. You know, you, you just got to try to set as many parameters as you can. Uh, let them practice in with staff, it's look, I'm going to supervise you every time until you get it perfectly. I like throwing everything against the wall, all the information, all the training, all the quizzing them on how to do stuff and whatever doesn't stick. I just keep picking up and throwing at it until they've got everything. But yeah, you don't want to have big mistakes that cost a lot of money. For me, it would have been hard to mess up something so badly because the most volume I ever did was maybe five gallons of coffee for a church or two gallons of cold brew. Not huge mistakes, not huge cost-effective mistakes. And it was always better to throw out. If it's not perfect, like the cost of the brewed coffee that we made, that one filter worth of coffee is not worth someone's poor experience and then not wanting to come back. Especially if you made two gallons of it, it might be a lot of poor experiences. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's worth starting over if you're not proud of what the product tastes like. And so there's only a few places I've been to that someone has pulled me a shot and poured it out. Did you have like uh, the ability to... Or, to, I guess, convey to your staff, like, is if you fucked up, dump it out. And how did that, did they do it? Did they not, did you have an issue with them not doing it? And they should have, or? No, I don't think so. Because, you know, setting expectations really high, right? For, you know, almost unreasonable expectations for staff, because they're not going to reach those, but you hope that they fall somewhere close to acceptable. Mm -hmm. But I, and I said, look, you know, I'm very meticulous and anal retentive about the coffee preparation this might take you longer to learn than all of the other drink names is making sure you do it exactly like this every time. So I, I think a lot of them got it. And especially ones that drank coffee themselves, they know that they wouldn't. It's like, if you wouldn't want it in your drink, then don't give it to somebody else. And if you've, you know, we try the shots every morning, every morning we pull in, we season the machine, which means pulling four shots out of each group head, filtering out all the, previous days coffee grounds in it and then dialing it in based on yesterday's weight and and time to extract and seeing if you get that same time if that still tastes good and if you try it in the morning and it's too acidic or it's too bitter you need one be able to identify that and then how you need to correct it does it mean you need to increase the dose size do you need to make it finer there there are a few parameters that you can do and some of them take more time than others I've definitely been chasing my tail in the morning and being a little late for the first customer because I'm like hey the house just isn't pulling right let me get you the single origin, no extra cost. This one's pulling great. I need a little more time fixing it. So that's a lot of waste. I think a lot of coffee shops, they'll want you to scoop up or they'll they'll grind a bunch of coffee beforehand and leave it in the hopper. And it's been sitting there for an hour ground, ready to be used. Hmm. And uh, the more exposure to air the coffee ground is, the more surface area it's exposed, the more it's drying out, the less the coffee oil's in there, which... That's why we grind it right before, right? right. That's the, the yeah, point. Yeah, so you only grind what you need in the grinder and... A lot of people that had had previous coffee shop jobs, that was something we had to teach. It's like, look, don't, don't just uh, use shit coffee for people. <laughs> These people are going to notice. We want them to notice. So we're trying to teach them to notice. Yeah, exactly. So mistake seven, uh, you didn't have this one, thankfully, because I can tell you that seems to be one of the most contentious uh, parts of our industry, at least, uh, which is trust distributors to sell your beer. 
since you didn't have distributors, give me uh, give me some story. Get, entertain us today, Mr. Cunningham. Tell, tell us something fun that happened in your business. We didn't have to distribute, but we still had to rely on on our distributors to get our stuff. So I've only really been on the receiving end of that, where I felt like I was pretty lucky with several of my suppliers getting me stuff that I asked for and not overcharging me. But, you know, when you're anticipating a really busy weekend or maybe it's the busiest weekend of the year, so you try to stock up on the extra non-dairy milks that you have and they say that they're going to bring it and then they don't. And you've got to try to scurry around making effort to, to make it sort of, sort of right. Or, but if, for example, if I use a different type of almond milk than I've normally been used, all of my regulars tell firsthand that like I something's different, yeah, something's yeah. wrong. And when you're focused on doing a, a product that has such room for error and people being able to notice it and cultivating that attitude, uh, it's hard to not be frustrated when somebody doesn't get you something they said they were going to get you. Um, and with coffee too, getting it from Washington State, you know, if there's a freeze in Colorado, then I may not get coffee that Monday. Do you uh, got it every week? Usually, we got it every week. Yeah. And I had a local guy here in town that was was getting better at coffee. Um, he was certainly buying quality stuff, but uh, the consistency wasn't always there. I'd ask him for the same temperature roast, reuse an espresso, and then I'd get it. It's a completely different color. And he was getting better at it. But it was nice having somebody close. So if my you know, 60 pounds of coffee didn't make it yet, I could have somebody deliver me something and some backup. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of people that I wanted to keep around. So those distributor relationships allowed me to keep them in business too. I don't know if you ever had to use supplies for anything. I have meant to, but I've never gone there because I found another solution before that. But yeah. Yeah. So I was using them for a while, but they, you know, they changed their ability for me to go in there and see the product and get it myself. And I was waiting on delivery that never showed up. Like we're done. Hmm. And then I dealt with uh, Bob from your Bronco's candy company to get me a lot of that stuff. So I didn't have to use supplies. Yeah. It's, it's easy to, to destroy a relationship when you cost somebody hundreds of dollars in, in one day. Yeah. And just, just headaches too. Like just the fact that you have to figure it out. And I, I actually don't love the fact that I buy a lot of things from Amazon, but I actually have a list of all my supplies. Yeah. And so every Monday I come in and just, just click the things that I need. Reorder. Uh, obviously that's very easy. And so, um, I get it. Fuck Bezos. But, um, mm. Same but time. <laughs> at, at the same time, you kind of have to do, like, I try not to get anything from Walmart for the same reason, but yeah, I, I never had to put stuff out for distribution. And, and you talked about that in your book is giving it to somebody who says it's going to take it to market and then it just doesn't show up. Yeah. And or they it, just don't present it well or they yeah. stop supporting it for whatever reason or don't tell HEB guy. They don't respond to the email and doesn't get into 17 stores. There's a whole bunch of stories I've got. Yeah. So I never had to really deal with any of that. Uh, but part of that was that I was not trying to disseminate product. You had to come in and get it. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the eighth mistake was build a small intimate tap room. And one of the things that I learned in breaking all that down, which again, the I've said many times in the book, I'll say it again, I should have learned before I opened my brewery, was that the profit per seat was an important consideration or the, or the most important consideration. Right. And when I walked in here um, and there's 16 seats, you run some quick math and you realize what your top end um, sales volume can be and it's not enough um, for what I needed for rent and utilities and all that kind of thing. Right. So obviously, you know, you had a small coffee shop. Most coffee shops are pretty small. How did that work out for you as far as um, the size? Was it, was it enough to get the daily revenue? And, and you had a drive-thru, which helps. But anyway. Right. Well, and I think the drive-thru was 
probably a good 60% of sales. Really? Uh, so I wouldn't, I don't think I would do a coffee shop unless it was a perfect snooty coffee shop location possible <laughs> without a drive through. You still want to be there for convenience. I don't think, I don't think anybody hated my coffee so much and just came to me because I was convenient. You know, we were tucked away in a small area of the neighborhood that people that have lived here for 10 years still don't know where it is. I made do with what I had. I think there was a time where, especially by year five or six, where we were starting to see people come in, maybe just on weekends, where there's no there's no place to sit, so they turn around and walk out. I always hesitated to want to increase seating or have to close down to, to build and do those things until it was a consistent, people are walking out. I'm seeing business leave. Yeah, at all hours of the day, too, because you're always going to have busy times from here and right. there. Now it's one of the bigger problems that we have. If, if if all the seats are taken, that's fine, but it's the overflow. That It's the next 10 people who, t- who couldn't sit. Right. That's where I would have made my profit. <laughs> so everybody sitting was fine, but I needed that extra 10%. And they needed to continue to be drinking. You know, when yeah. you've got people that are parked up at a coffee shop with their laptop, making phone calls, going in and out, opening the door. They've had one cup of coffee three hours ago, and they're taking up an entire table space. Now they're not paying the rent for that seat. They're not. They're not paying the rent for the seat. Like I said, having the drive-through it, it alleviates some of that pressure. But yeah, at some point there's there are things to do like with coffee shops. It's the Wi-Fi where you you set the Wi-Fi. You only get it for an hour, and mm-hmm. if you want more access to it, you need to purchase something else, and the code will be on your receipt. So there were ways to get around it. I felt like I was just starting to get there and was considering increasing seating, and then and then COVID happened. So I was glad <laughs> it I decreased all money. of it. Yeah, it decreased yeah. all of my inside seating for sure. Well, you um, you did have a, a, some sort of some food things too. Um, I know you have a breakfast tacos and some pastries. Was that something you did from the beginning? Did you add it in second? And did you see? So in our industry, one of the reasons that we do food is that people who eat drink more and right. stay longer, and right. so obviously it, it raises your ticket price and just you know the amount of people that are here. Did it do something similar in your industry? Yeah, I think the aspect of being able to provide two services or and even with the smoothies, right? I just didn't want that to be my focus. You need to have accompanying products where, you know, if people don't drink coffee, they've got another option. If people are hungry that want breakfast, they've got something there. So I, I think those things are necessary to for the same reasons. Keep people here, drink more coffee. If they want to come here because they can get breakfast, that means they get a place where they get good coffee instead of just going to the breakfast pancake place and getting shitty coffee there. So having those options are great, but I hate making food. I worked as a cook. I can cook. I can follow a recipe. If, you know, it's anniversary night and I need to make something, I can, I can do that. But I take zero joy out of making food. Really? I would rather wash dishes for 50 people at Thanksgiving than have any part in food prep. So we did baked items, but I wanted to keep it to a minimum. So I didn't spend all my time baking. The original owners, we made breakfast. Like we had a skillet and a hot pan back that could bake in eggs and uh, the amount of mess and it, the place smelling like a taco place instead of a coffee place wasn't something that I wanted when I took over. So it was better to find people that they excelled at that and have it brought in. So we had a local baker make some of our muffins for a while until she went out of business. We use Los Gallos tacos. They deliver every morning, so I don't have to deal with it. That's perfect, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think you need to have stuff available that are other options to appease to if you got a group of people and one person doesn't want to be there because you don't have what they want, they're less likely to spend more money. Yeah. Or they'll recommend just in general, go somewhere different before yeah. they even get there. Yeah. So mistake nine, this is one of the, my least favorite. It actually was one of the most traumatic parts of the book for me to write because I fucking hate online beer reviews. Yeah. Um, and, and I 
in my personal opinion, I would think that on, I think that online beer reviews are even less intelligent and um, more hateful than the average review for average businesses. Um, and I've obviously owned fitness centers before. I've, I've looked at other things. Is it because they're drunk while they're writing it? No, I don't know what I, let me, I can't even fucking make this one up. So I, I did an, a Facebook ad for this beer we did this weekend. It's a collaboration between all four breweries locally. Okay. We aged it in a barrel during COVID. Um, so it's kind of like, it's a collaboration over coronavirus is what we called it. Okay. The idea being, Hey, fuck you. We beat it. We beat it. So I didn't add and I had a guy go on there and just literally on my Facebook page, on my ad talking about us coming together for, for the greater good. He just goes off on a rant about how, um, beer or alcohol is poison. Drunk drivers uh. kill people. Um, <laughs> and I don't remember what the other ones. There's like two other things. And then I deleted it off the page, but like, fuck are you doing like what? so anyways there's a bunch of yeah. reasons why i think we you know beer is sort of the every man's drink too i'm sure it's, there's some negativity in wine but it's probably not going to be quite the the same as it is in beer but anyways so obviously you're going to have reviews for your business i asked around a little bit on what other people's opinions were close friends also agree with me that you know best coffee in town in our opinion one of my friends who is, I would say, the biggest coffee nerd I, I know mm-hmm. um, personally, his, he had his one complaint was that, which was an overall complaint, I didn't like the place because it was too hot. The coffee was too hot. Coffee was too hot. Okay. Which is kind of the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But I remember there being times when the coffee was really hot. I don't care. I just let it cool for a minute and I drank it. Yeah. But anyways, what have you seen from reviews and what kind of experience did you have? So, oh, well, I mean... I think with reviews, it, when you're first starting out and, you know, you're, you're scared of every review that comes on because there are only 10 reviews, 15 reviews, and none of them are stellar. Starting out, it's hard to get people that, especially in a tourist town where they show up and they search coffee shops near me. If your reviews are lackluster, they might go somewhere else. So mm-hmm. I think you're hyper alert to how people perceive you publicly. And of course, you know, these people are behind their keyboard, so they, they feel a lot more entitled and I think angry in their posts when they're not having to do it to your face. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's certainly startling and, and, and worrisome at first, but after a while you've been established, it's less of an issue. I think the biggest thing to do is to take someone's frustration. Even if you disagree wholeheartedly that they're full of shit, this is not something to be upset about. Uh, in fact, I remember you, I was the one that served you and you caused this problem. This is why you got treated like shit or why you're upset is because you have unrealistic expectations about anything in life in general. But you can't say shit like that online. You can't? I, I mean, should probably redo my entire can. concept then. I found that when I look at reviews for restaurants and I see someone else's shit review, if the owner responded without being frustrated, without attacking them, even though they clearly sucks, I was more likely to go to a place that food-wise was three stars because I saw how they responded to negative posts. And that takes a certain amount of skill and certainly not one that I had after first reading a review. Like yeah. I need to take a day and calm down and not, and not blow up on this person. So did you reply to all your reviews? I replied to all my reviews. Unless okay. one was just absolutely just hateful, you know, that uh, there's nothing I'm going to do or say or fix. I might have ignored that one because it was better than trying to engage. Did you have a policy for that? Like, so you were like, well, I don't reply to the people who behave this way or no, it was just sort of, you felt it at a time. And Yeah. I just, I tried to, I didn't let, 
I had some of the girls take over social media stuff, but I would take care of anybody posting or replying to, to negative reviews. Okay. Uh, so I, I tried to, I tried to approach it and a look, let me try to fix the situation. But there are certain circumstances where nothing I was going to do was going to make them happy that day. Did you ever get someone that came back and said, thanks for the reply? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I actually, I had a, someone else that talked about how they hated the place and they were going to go to two rivers and, or something else. And then I saw her every, every day. <laughs> and this was like a year later, you know, I'm, I, I recognized I'm like, Hey, you're the lady that got really mad about this. And she's like, and left a one star review. And she's like, she's like, yeah, but that was several years ago. I'm like, it's still oh, on cool. there. I'm like, yeah. I was like, could you pull it then? Since you do like the experience now. We were fortunate enough. I, I really didn't have that many reviews. I was the highest rated or a type for the highest rated coffee shop in town. If you did Yelp or Google. Mm-hmm. So I think I was fortunate. We had our customers that really liked us or at least if they were frustrated, not frustrated enough to want to try to tear you down online. If you're ever bored and you want to look at the uh, the bottom of the barrel, go look at my online reviews. There's okay. some good ones. But one of the things that's frustrating, you mentioned the one-star review thing and, and Google doesn't really do that. Uh, actually, I guess they probably – no, they don't take the old ones off. But So there's a popular beer rating website. I mean, the, there's really only one and then a couple of like – half-ass ones, but untapped, they do an aggregate rating for your beer and then an aggregate rating for your brewery based on those. And so it'll be uh, every review of that beer since the beginning of, you know, since inception yeah, is the aggregate review, but they only have like the last, it may be based on numbers and it may be based on time, but you can't go back more than like six months. I can have a score based on shit that happened four years ago, but you right. can't go see it or, or comment on it. It doesn't. It comes off the internet, but it doesn't come off your score, I yeah. guess, in that sense. And that's just ridiculous to me because most things do get better with time or they go out of business. Right. Um, so theoretically, the reviews over the last three years should be better than the reviews from the first three. In my case, that's absolutely the, tr- the case, but it doesn't matter. I've still got to pay for that shit that we did 10 right. years ago. So. And it's... I definitely learned a lot more patience being a business owner than I was managing because if somebody was pulling the, you know, the poor man's latte, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but someone will get three shots of espresso over ice in a large cup and then go over to your counter and take all the half and half of whatever milk you have and make themselves a latte while they only paid for three shots. And like that shit used to drive me crazy and I would just call people out on it. Look, man, don't don't try to steal. It's like, look, I, I'll make it for you. Why don't I just let me stir it in for you? But it's I got to charge you what it is. Yeah. <laughs> Once I was an owner, it's like, look, I got it. How I respond to this is almost as important as what I say. This person's going to read it. Someone else might not see how much how a shitty person they were when they came in. And simply because I was mean to them online, they don't want to come into my shop because I've certainly been that person to, to other places. So mistake 10 was don't figure out how to manage cash flow. Uh, clearly, you probably never had this issue, but um, in, in breweries specifically, we tend to be such capital capital intensive in the beginning, but it doesn't seem to go away. There's a lot of reinvesting, it's, and so it's, it's very challenging. Most breweries are losing money most of the time. It's challenging to really have an operating budget that allows you to stay profitable. So obviously, cash flow becomes extremely important, but challenging to manage. So uh, in your industry... Uh, obviously it was a little bit different, but it seems like there's a lot of parallels. So what was that like for you? And how often did you run out of money? I guess is a good question. So I think, you know, it's, it's anticipation is a difficult thing or anticipation about what sales are going to be like in a particular month is, was not consistent. I had a hard time figuring out when I needed to schedule three people to work versus two, you know, some Saturday we got slammed. I'm like, well, I'm not going to let that happen again. 
and then the next day is a Tuesday, and it was busier than the previous Saturday. You don't know what you're going to get each month. Being able to save and kind of cover you through, because, I mean, if espresso machine goes down or refrigerator goes down, that's a lot of money going out, and I want to make sure that I'm never carrying a balance on my credit card. I mean, there were some months that were in the red, but I was pretty lucky that I didn't spend more than I was going to get in for that month. But part of that was just I lived really frugally. I mean, I didn't do this job because it was going to allow me several, you know, European cruise ship tours or vacations. It, it wasn't going to do that. So that wasn't your Range Rover that was parked in front? No, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the whole time. Uh, yeah, like it, it was not going to be the case. I actually made more money being a manager of that uh, kiosk in the hospital than I did as an owner ever at that shop. But you worked less hours probably. Yeah, but that was, so that was just it, right? So you said it's about reinvesting your money and like how much money you can put in. Well, I never gave myself a raise, but I stopped, I just worked less. It's like I spent all my extra profits for having the business grow into me being able to take a little more time off. I mean, I was lucky that I never really, I never had to put anybody else out. Uh, I didn't have to say, look, I can't, cover your hours this week because we had a shitty month that that didn't happen that's a that's a rare situation but again part of it was taking less of a risk i didn't borrow a lot of money to buy the shop it wasn't doing that well to begin with so i got a better than average value for it and i just didn't put as much money into things that weren't going to be profit driven and i think because i was a little bit more miserly with it that i was able to sustain but also keep your staff happy if you don't you don't take care of your staff then they treat it like shit and you make less money. Yeah, they treat your customers like shit. Yeah. If they're getting paid well enough, then the next person that's being shitty for no reason, you take it with a little bit more of a grain of salt. Well, obviously that leads right into the fact that you no longer own a coffee shop. So you made the decision at some point to sell. Why? What happened? Uh, man, this last year was hard. Um, it wasn't so much financially hard, though. Like It was profit-wise, 2020 was my probably my second best year. That was entirely based on me saving saving hours for employees. Mm, we just okay. didn't have the ability to give people the same hours that they had. But I got my PPP loan in, and I spent the whole thing on labor. So everybody got paid what they expected to make before there were ever any restrictions on hours because of COVID based on a tip week that they got good tips, and I paid them for eight weeks to stay at home. And if they wanted to come work, I would pay them on top of that to come work. When you're splitting tips with everybody with less people working, that's a, it's a huge increase. So they were able to make money and the, the few employees that I wasn't going to be able to hold on to or have enough hours for, they had eight weeks to, to find a new job. Uh, I mean, I felt good about that, but yeah, this last year was people were a lot less, less understanding or at least empathetic or kind this last year. You know, people were frustrated about a lot of things and understandably so. And I, I'm all for having a difference of opinion, but when 85% of the people that come through are frustrated at you for inconvenience in their life somehow, <laughs> it's the same thing when you talk about all these other costs in a, in, a, in a business, whether it's the overhead that you don't see that gives out for free. They were unwilling to, even under uh, a calm discussion, see that if you thought that this was a, if this was a hoax, then... Financially, it made more sense for me to not expose enough of my staff to potentially have to, to bench them until the authorities said it was okay for them to come back to work. You know, even if you thought it was a hoax, the idea that I still had to follow rules and I wanted to expose staff less, which would allow me to consistently be able to hire them. There are plenty of shops or uh, businesses that had to close down for a couple weeks at a time 
because I just couldn't get a handle on things. Right. Uh, but people didn't want to see any of it. They didn't want to see that I was looking to take care of people that I care about that had upper respiratory disease and I, I need to be careful with them. I was doing all their shopping. I wanted to take care of my staff. I wanted to ensure that my doors stayed open. Man, just not letting people do whatever they wanted to do gave them free reign to be slightly condescending all the way to like spitting at you. Really? Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. And this is basically because you had a mask policy that they didn't like? Uh, cause I, well, I had my lobby closed. I closed yeah. the interior the whole time and just operated out of the drive-thru, and I had one person working per shift per day. And maybe if I had had some more camaraderie, if I had had more people working with me when people were being shitty, you know, you just kind of joke yeah. about it and run it off. But I was working three to four 13-hour shifts a week and not really having any, any escape from it. Uh, so I think that definitely took a lot of the joy out of being at work, you know, and, I, and I'm sure things are going to blow over. Things are already starting to get better, but I can't unsee some of the <laughs> things that, that people have done or said uh, to the point where I wasn't enjoying it as much. I knew that I wanted to be able to give the same opportunity to someone else that I got, and I was never going to be there forever. Once the, my stepson graduated high school, he wanted to be able to not be so anchored where we could go and do other things. So uh, my wife's a bookkeeper and she can work from home and that allows her the ability to do so. So I knew the next step was going to be something that allowed a little bit more freedom with it. It just turned out that the beginning of 2021 was the right time for them. Uh, they were able to have the money. Uh, Mom had always wanted to have a coffee shop and Avery does such a good job for me as a manager and taking care of stuff that I knew that she could handle it. So it was an opportunity for them to be able to love it in a way that I just, I couldn't put as much time into it as much emotionally, but as far as physically time. So it was a, it was a win-win. I'm able to work with other small businesses now, really boring credit card stuff, but, <laughs> but having been a small business owner and known how much that really affected my ability to pay rent when Square raised their rates on me, it was a month's worth of income a year lost just off of a, a simple transaction fee. So I, I work and I help other businesses avoid that now, and I can kind of pick and choose who I go see, and I can make my own schedule, and, and having that freedom to do that, well, certainly a little more boring to me than making coffee is. It provides a little bit more financial freedom and time and space. Yeah, so when was the transition? Uh, February 1st of this year. Oh, okay. That's the first day they took over. So uh, have you had a chance to really miss it yet? Uh, I miss... I miss what it was, I guess, to a certain degree. I don't know, man. It's like an amicable divorce. I wish them well. (laughs) I wish them well. I have no hard feelings about it. I enjoyed my time when it was there. It it got rougher than it needed to be. And uh, it got to a place where it I wasn't going to enjoy it more, but I also wanted to see it succeed. So uh, I'm glad they're running with it and making changes. And it doesn't look the same as when I was in there. And that's a good thing. But I, I know they're still focusing on quality. And I I appreciate that they kept the name and want to keep that integrity with it. So, yeah, I, I'm not missing it too much. I'm really just happy for them, and, and I'm kind of happy I'm not having to get up at 5 in the morning and, <laughs> and work really long shifts. So, yeah, there's some there's some perks to it, but I'll always love coffee, and that will always be you know that, that baby I put out into the universe. So I'll be proud of that. So has, did owning a coffee shop affect your 
I think, I guess, I don't know if I'd say standard, but just enjoyment of coffee in general. Well, like, do you always pick it apart now? Can you just have a cup? Like, or did you always pick it apart before? It doesn't make any difference, but. Well, actually, I mean, I drink far less coffee than I think most coffee shop owners would, and I'm a lot more forgiving about, about coffee. I know I was, I read a book from Mary Roach, then she does a couple of different topics, but one of them was about, about taste and how people judge beers and wines and food. And she said that she interviewed somebody that does one of the European beer judging. She's a judge for that. But when she went to the interviews, she saw at her bar and she got a Budweiser. And it's like, sometimes she just wants what that is. How it needs a day yeah. off. Yeah. yeah. And for me, I, if, if someone's going to make coffee in the morning and I don't have to do it, I'm happy to have it so long as it's not flavored. <laughs> I, you know, so you do have a line we can't I do cross. have a line yeah. but, uh, but I'm, not a, I'm not above drinking somebody's Keurig if that's what it's there making coffee in the morning is uh, was it Seinfeld that did he was dating Jerry was dating a masseuse and she never wanted to rub on him when she was done with work because she'd been doing it all day yeah that's kind of how I felt about making coffee for a while really if it's I'm overdone it I'll let somebody else make it and I won't complain if they make it I, I miss the job. I would like to probably be a part of the industry, but the more you're an owner, the more you're responsible for many of the other things involved, including dealing with staff and dealing with orders and stuff that breaks down. That doesn't, mm. that's not the fun part. The fun part is bullshitting with people and being able to make their drinks and the presentation and all of those things. And I could do that as a barista and not have to own the place. I had the same experience with the fitness centers that when we had one, the whole point was I wanted to see. Mary come in, you know, she's overweight, older, had never really done fitness before right. and kind of fall in love with the process a little bit, but also see the results and get that, that spark in her eye when she yep. got to throw her blood pressure medication away or whatever. And once we had eight facilities, you know, 9,000 members, There's I was in a corporate office in the back. The only time I ever talked to Mary is when she's pissed off about her billing. And I, I, I lost the passion for the industry because yeah. I didn't get to see that part anymore, you know? Yeah, that was definitely something that kept me from wanting to open up another location. Uh, that along with the crazy rent and what expectations are for payments for that. But I knew I would be doing less and less of the thing that I actually got into the industry to do. Uh, so I, I focused on that one spot and just made it work where I liked my life. Well, obviously you've taken away some things too that are going to improve your life. But what, what's a, a lesson or a, like there's something that you took away from the experience of owning a coffee shop that not only share with other people, but just that you, you can cherish for yourself? Sure. You know, I, I, I think... Whatever career you choose to do, if you're if you're passionate about it, people will notice that. They'll want to be around you with this thing that you're passionate about and be a part of it. So for somebody wanting to start a coffee shop, like you, you really have to love the product and the process. I would recommend anybody that wants to start up a business that they go work in one for a while. And, <laughs> and, and ask as many things as that you know your your boss or owner wants to share with you. If you can figure out financials, if they're willing to share anything, learn that because that experience will help you avoid somebody else's mistakes and being able to chat with people that are in a similar industry or who your suppliers might be, might give you a better idea of, of if that's something you want to do at this spot. But yeah, once you, I mean, the other stuff will come though. If you're, if you're passionate about it and you're willing to learn and you're willing to say my, my initial reaction wasn't right, then I think that the other stuff will fall into place lessons from Josh Cunningham. I appreciate you spending time with us. Um, is, is there anything that you think that I missed that I should have included? Any questions I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think I think this was great. Uh, I mean, I appreciate you having me. This has been, uh, it's been a fun experience and I, I liked seeing a lot of the overlap from reading the book, but also talking to you here some stuff that wasn't in there. And I, 
uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the the new addition and the stuff that you've added to it. Yeah, well, hopefully I don't disappoint. So that, that'll be out soon. But and again, thanks for uh, coming down. And I know it's always challenging to get people to come visit me at a brewery and, and talk to me here. So uh, taking time out of your day and sharing your experiences with all our listeners, um, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure they do as well. So. Sure, man. It was my pleasure. Thank yeah. you. Remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and send it to your house in a book large enough to knock somebody out? Well, that's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. The industry can be better by being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simple to use, and one of those how the hell did we ever get along without it products. For less than a case of beer, you get real-time fermentation feedback on your current gravity, temperature, and clarity. If anything is slowing down or just simply out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving beer quality off your list, and get back to figuring out how to be profitable in this industry. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guests tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. Media.